What's up, heroes, and welcome to the Producer Life Podcast, episode 89. It's hard to believe we're approaching 100 episodes, and for all of you listening, thank you. Today, our guest is Ronnie Rask, better known as Rascal. Rascal is a house and techno music producer, podcaster, and record label owner of Southern Exposure Music. As a music producer, one of his recent releases, No Place to Hide, spent many weeks in the Beatport Top 100, and he's released multiple tracks that broke Top 10 over the last couple of years. I was really astounded at the number of released and unreleased tracks in his catalog. One of his recent Melodics podcast episodes was three hours long of all original music. During the conversation, we talk about his influences, he offers advice for both picking a record label and starting your own, and he talks about why he doesn't use templates, but loves Ableton's push too. This episode is full of useful advice and encouragement, so if you're struggling a bit with your music, this is the episode for you. Before we jump in, though, I want to give a big shout out to Melodics.com, who sponsored this episode. We're all looking for ways to set ourselves apart on stage, and finger drumming is one awesome way to do it. Several years back, I was in Orlando for an Ill Gates performance. He played a lot of original bass music, and the performance was awesome, but towards the end, he pulled out a MIDI controller and began jamming out the drum line for one of his tracks live. And for me, at least, that was one of the most impressive and attention-grabbing feats of the evening. Beat matching is one thing, but playing the beat, that's a whole other level of performance. So if you like the idea of incorporating some live aspects into your DJ performance, Melodics is the way to get there and have fun while you're doing it. Melodics.com offers a desktop app that makes it fun to learn to finger drum, play the piano, or even play electronic drums. And you can probably use it with whatever MIDI controller or keyboard you already have because it works with just about anything. The Melodics app helps you learn quickly because it's available anytime on your schedule, and it makes the learning process fun through gamification with things like streaks, records, and levels. They also have a ton of different backing tracks to select from, and you can speed up or slow down tempos to adjust to your learning needs. So give it a try. They've got 60 free lessons for you at no cost. From there, if you like it, you can subscribe to unlock additional premium content, but make sure you use the producerlife-20 code. Again, that's producerlife-20 for 20% off of an annual subscription or 20% off of a monthly subscription for the first three months. And now, cue the intro music. All right, Ronnie, welcome to the Producer Life Podcast. I appreciate it. Glad to be here. Looking forward to it. I think this is going to be good. I uh, was sort of thinking about where we should start the conversation, and uh, I thought maybe we would start off with with names, because uh, okay. you've got you've got a couple of different names associated with you. You've got your podcast brand, you've got your you've got your record label, and you've got your artist label. Can you tell me about sort of the origins of the names there? How did you obviously your DJ name is a play on your personal name, right? Yeah. Yeah. My last name is uh, Rask. And so it's uh, just kind of something that's always stuck around with me. So Ronnie Rascal, that's a lot of people call me. And so I just went with that and uh, I, you know, actually picked that up in the nineties because that's when I started DJing. And so it's kind of stuck around since then. I thought about changing it here and there, uh, but it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't bother me. So I, I like it. And 
that's stick it stick it out <laughs> yeah I, I like it too it's got a playful fun you know approachable kind of sound but it's it's relatively unique too so and then your record label southern exposure music how did that come how did that name come about yeah so that was a play on a couple things first uh, i'm really influenced by I guess Sasha and John Digweed back in the 90s, uh, late 90s, and they had Northern Exposure, uh, which was their big tour slash uh, release uh, compilation kind of thing that they put together in the 90s, which really influenced me. Second part of it is, you know, here in the South, I'm in uh, Atlanta, based in Atlanta. So we wanted to expose a lot of the artists in the South. Now it's grown to something where I've released a lot of artists label or artist records outside of the south but that was the initial idea was you know exposing a little light on you know producers here and we still continue to do that um giving people an opportunity to put out their music that are from the south as well as you know pairing them up with people across the world okay i like it um good that that makes sense now you not let's see your 90s that was that's 30 years ago. So you've been doing this for a long time. <laughs> yeah, I have. It's a, uh, it's a mix of time. So I, I started in about 96 and we can jump into that if you want to talk about that in a little bit, but just a quick rundown is started around 96, 97, right when I was in the end of high school, I uh, started DJing and uh-huh. I did that pretty hardcore here in Atlanta till about 2002. Me and my wife, uh, she's also a DJ and we got married, started having kids decided we can't do all this and manage being, you know, really bad new parents. (laughs) Um, And we ended up having five kids overall, which is insane. Yeah. Uh, And both DJs, like I said, so we were just done with it for a while. And then about 10 years ago, maybe eight years ago, actually more like 15, I started producing again. I had already dabbled in producing back in the 90s, but I started really like focusing on it on my own. And so from that point on, I started producing. Then we're kind of looking around going, you know, our kids are a little older now and uh, we have a babysitter built in with our oldest. And we're like, you know, we can start getting back into the actual scene of it all. And that's what we did. We got back into, I was already producing, already making music just for myself. I had no intentions of releasing it at the time and got back into it. Made some old connections, new connections again. And started DJing, producing full time. I mean, nonstop from that point on. So it was a big, big, big break there in the middle, you know. But <laughs> yeah, but it's awesome you've come back, come back to your passions. And yeah, when we were when we were talking before, now you, you had mentioned that uh, you kind of had your earliest roots kind of in the acid house scene. Was that? Was that in the 90s or when, when was that? So that was more right when I came back into things. So in the 90s, I was into a lot of progressive house, like the progressive house of the 90s, progressive trance, Sasha, John Digweed, those types of people. Um, that's generally what I played and when I kind of started producing on. And then when I came back in, I did have a, a really good connection that was made between me and uh, DJ Pierre who is, uh, as many people know, the founder of Acid House. He made a track called Acid Tracks back in the 80s, which took off worldwide and basically created this Acid House scene. Um, But again, this is me coming back in around 2000, I don't know, 2010, 2012, somewhere right around there. 
And we just happened to make the right connection. And I was able to go and work for him for a while and help, you know, his, his thing happen, which is based a lot around Asset House, which actually got me really involved with techno is kind of what I stick to mostly now because they're real similar, similar places that people go when they play Asset House or techno or whatever. You, you said you happened to make a connection. What, what was, how did that connection occur? Cause that seems like that was pretty instrumental to you. Yeah. Sort of a really good learning experience there. Well, DJ Pierre had moved to Atlanta and he was living here and starting to throw shows. And I started going to some of the shows of him and his group. Um, what were they called? They were called, uh, I can't think of it right at the moment. Um, Oh, Future. It's based off of it. See, DJ Pierre has a second group called Future. It's P-H-U-T-U-R-E. And so he was throwing shows um, under that na- under that uh, moniker. So he was doing it here in Atlanta. So I started checking him out. And a mutual friend of ours had been playing some of those shows, made the right connection for me, said, you know, Ronnie's an amazing producer. You're looking for a producer in town to work with. This is your guy. And... So connected me with Pierre, and from that point on, it just kind of took off. I ended up working for him for about three, three and a half years. At one point, ran his label Afro Acid for uh, those that time, pretty much, and helped him, you know, manage that. I worked alongside of him, you know, with some tracks and stuff like that, which uh, really opened up a bunch of doors for me. Gave me a lot of confidence. Helped me learn a bunch of things that I wasn't planning on learning. That's kind of, yeah, I wasn't planning on running a record label at any point. Um, but once I had done that work with DJ Pierre, someone real iconic, I was like, well, you know what? I could probably do this on my own too and make something of my own record label. And that's where Southern Exposure Music came about. Okay. And, and Southern Exposure Music was what, 2017? Is that right? Yeah, right around there. Uh-huh. So what what lessons did you learn from working with DJ Pierre and Future and sort of how did that help to inform you're creating Southern exposure music. Well, it was just simply that uh, in my mind coming from the nineties, it was a different world as far as record labels went, you know, there were much bigger entities. Um, there were these things that basically made created artists, sent artists around the world. Um, you know, everyone knew these artists from the record labels first um, versus now it's kind of 50, 50, you know, People know record labels. They also know artists. There's a, a nice mix of that going on. But at the same time, those record labels aren't making the artists what they are anymore. The artist is doing that. They're playing these shows. You know, it's not it's not like this big place where you're going to make a, a you know whole bunch of money from the record label. It's a different world. Back in the 90s, it was like that. So in my mind, it was this giant, crazy entity still. And as I started working with Pierre, I realized that it the door to entry to starting a record label was a lot smaller than I had imagined it. So it opened up my perception of what I could do. Um, Having that workload as well as producing, as well as DJing out, as well as my family, uh, I realized, Oh, I can, I can handle this myself. So it gave me a lot of confidence and it gave me a lot of perception to realize, Oh, I I can handle doing what I would like to do. And I think I really want to start my own record label. And so that's kind of what he offered me was just having that work experience, opening my eyes to how things worked in the the modern, you know, uh, music scene. <laughs> yeah. What, so what, 
made you want to run your own record label other than the cool ring of I'm a record label owner? That's actually the funny part is that part never really made me excited. I didn't really care. I still don't care about, you know, people usually say, Hey, have you heard of this record label? This is the guy who runs it rascal. And I think that's cool, but I just like giving music the opportunity to come to life. And, you know, especially music that I'm really interested in. People always ask me, what kind of music do you put out on Southern exposure music? And I say, I'm not really sure. It's honestly, it's techno, it's house. It's a little progressive, little, there's some, you know, tech house on there. It's just stuff that I find interesting. I usually say if, if at some point, at some point in the night, if I were DJing, if I would play this track, I would probably put it out on my record label. So, you know, it's like getting that inspiration to help those songs come to life and be a part of that has always been you know, what's exciting to me. And as I said in the beginning, you know, I wanted to shine light on new artists. So instead of just, you know, saving up a bunch of cash and going and picking up tracks from well-established artists, I wanted to have the opportunity to, you know, come in and, and really bring something new to the table for people. And so that yeah. was the inspiration I had because that's always still, still today, it's always a hard sell trying to, you know, get your stuff out there. And I, I didn't want it to be that hard. Now I'm, we don't just put out anything. It has to be something I enjoy, but at the same time, I'm willing to work with whoever. So, you know, I, it's like the, it's like the old record crate digging days. I don't know if, if you've played on vinyl a whole bunch, but um, no, I haven't. Okay. <laughs> so experience that most DJs today never experienced as well as, you know, most producers uh, is the whole vinyl, you know, phenomenon. So, you know, just having your track put onto a piece of vinyl is something special. Seeing this physical representation of your sound. On top of that, when you were a DJ, you would go into the record store and you would just search, search and listen. You put it on the turntable and you listen. Nope, don't like that. Go to the next thing. And it was this long, drawn out experience because there was a lot of tactile stuff to it. You know, you're grabbing something, you're putting it on a turntable, you're listening um so it, it was a lot of investment you had to invest your time and your money i look back i still have a pretty large record collection from back then and i, I have no clue how i afforded any of that <laughs> like, <laughs> i do the math and i'm like I, I was like waiting tables as well as djing like you know there was and i'm going to college it's like there, I, I have no clue how i ever afforded all of this vinyl um so there was just a lot of investment because you know you'd buy for one track you'd buy a whole piece of vinyl, you spend 10 to 12 bucks, you know, yeah. and you're hoping the B side had something that you could make work as well. Um, so most people these days don't even know that experience. Now I, I don't necessarily prefer playing on vinyl or anything like that. I can still do it. I generally like playing more in the electronic digital realm. Um, I wouldn't play on vinyl. If, you know, I had to, I mean, unless it was like a must or something, I just don't, I don't enjoy it as much anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so that being said, you know, there was definitely an investment into vinyl that people made and people these days don't really even know that existed. You know, they'll go on Beatport and listen to tracks or go on whatever store they go to, to listen to tracks or like get promos or whatever. But the time investment is so it's, it's just like everything digital. So it's sped everything up. It's made everything yeah. quicker. And, and uh, of yeah. course now though, you've got a whole lot more to pick from too. I mean, the, True. you know, 
30,000 new tracks every day onto Spotify. So there's, even though yeah. the process of selecting music is faster, there's so much more to select from too. Yeah, that's for sure, man. It's definitely, uh, it can be a little, little crazy. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's funny though, because though we have more to select from, um, I, I think the percentage of quality music is, is still similar. Like I, I'm, I'm still hitting good hits at the same rate I would with the vinyl, but it's like, cause there's so much more, you know, music that just doesn't work for me. I won't say it's bad music or anything. It just doesn't work for me as well as music. I like, you know, and the same way I would go into a vinyl selection time and I'd be sitting there listening and be like, Nope, Nope, Nope. Oh yes. And you know, it's like similar to now it's like, there's still a good percentage of good to bad stuff. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. Okay. So for producers out there that are thinking about maybe starting a record label, if if you could offer yourself in hindsight some advice when you were getting started with Southern Exposure, what would you say to yourself or, or to a new producer thinking about starting a label? Yeah, definitely. A uh, good, good bit of stuff I would say to myself. Um, honestly, I feel like the way we did it has worked out really well. I'm very happy with it. Um, so I would kind of lean on that a little bit. And what I mean by that is first you have to get a good distributor. You know, this is something people don't even know anything about. Like I I helped my friend, uh, Mihir. He's actually, you had Zexter on a little bit ago and and Uh he talked about a person I introduced him to Mihir. I helped Mihir start his record label white line. Um, and he was in the same boat. He, He didn't know, where to even begin? He actually flew to Atlanta and we played a gig here together. And then we sat and talked for a long time so he could pick my brain about, you know, starting a record label. So go back to the very beginning, get a good distributor, you know, distributors, uh, for those who don't know, they're going to take the music you put up into their platform and send it out to all of the stores that you choose on their platform that they'll send it to. Usually everyone chooses everything because you want it to stream, you want it to go to people to buy and, and whatnot. Um, so for example, the distributor I'm with is Proton Music. And what okay. makes them a good distributor in my mind is I'm willing to sacrifice some, some money per stream or some money per purchase so that they will then handle all the accounting, all of the distribution, all of the uploading, all these things that I can do with just one upload from my end, they'll handle. So that's well worth the small fraction of a, a purchase, a small fraction of a stream that they take. Um, you know, so they, the biggest one for me was the accounting part. You know, you can only do so much. You know, if you're going to go in and just find the smallest percentage per- person out there to distribute your music or go to just distribute it through Bandcamp or stuff like that, which is great, you also have to account for all that. So, you know, there's a lot of labels out there that don't do the financial accounting correctly. They don't pay their artists correctly. It all trickles down to everyone being upset and frustrated with you. You know, so accounting is the most important part because with Proton, for example, they cut off. All, I, I set up all of the different splits, whether it's for the label for usually, you know, if you're just getting into it, maybe you don't even know 
But uh, a general practice is the label will take 50% of a stream or a sale, and then the artist gets 50% of the stream or sale. That's all minus the small fraction that Proton takes. Um, But you want your accounting software to do that for you and then send out checks appropriately for you, or you're going to have to do that all on your own. (laughs) And say you want to be a producer and a DJ and a label owner, well, you're going to have a lot on your plate if you don't find the right distributor that can help you with that stuff. You know, it's not stuff that, you know, again, record labels aren't the giant behemoths they once were. So it's not like they're going to be making so much money that you could have someone do that for you. You're going to do it. <laughs> yeah. You know? um, why, why put yourself into that situation? Get someone that you can trust like a good distributor that will also do all the accounting, handles all of the uploads, sends it out to all the stores. You do one thing, and that's, here's my release. Here's all the little things it needs me to put into the info and, you know, uh, the artwork and all that kind of stuff. And then you're done. It goes out to the stores. And in fact, you're done with the accounting too, because it cuts it down, sends it out to the artists when appropriate and whatnot. So that's that's the best advice I can give someone is find a good distributor. And I couldn't suggest Proton more. I've worked with those guys for many years now. I've worked with a few different ones. Um, and I would say that's probably my favorite that I you know, have used. Okay, um, great. I'll have to take a look at that. Yeah. Um, you mentioned album artwork, and I, I got to say, I was looking at the Southern Exposure website, and <laughs> your album artwork is awesome. I absolutely love it. It's got kind of this 80s yeah. synthwave feel to it. It's colorful. It pops. It's it's all kind of similar, but but intriguing. Who, who does your artwork? Uh, so I do all the graphic design myself. That's my day job is a graphic designer slash marketing person. So, wow. Uh, okay. Yeah, that's I, I've always done all the artwork myself. So um, it, it, it's a way that I can use that talent for myself, which is nice. Usually I'm just using it for other people. Um, yeah, that's great. And then that for your own tracks, you know, kind of gives you even more of a sense of ownership. Not only have you created the music, you've also done the artwork. Yeah, yeah. In fact, we've actually uh, uh, done a few videos um, for some of my tracks too, which is on our YouTube channel under Southern Exposure Music, uh, which was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, it's kind of funny because I have one track called, uh, droid love and it's actually that my was friend. the one I was just thinking of. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah, I looked at that one. I yep. thought of this video idea. It's one of the only tracks that starting, I had a visual idea before I started the track. So like I had this idea of, of robots dancing, <laughs> you know, like this, this robots dancing that see each other and fall in love. That was the weirdest idea I'd had. And that was like, all right, and I started writing this song, and it's one of my favorite songs too. My friend Nate, every time I play, he just comes up and holds his phone up with a picture of it. I'm like, oh man, <laughs> search through my folder, find it, play it for him. Um, but uh, yeah, so like those those were really cool because I was able to to put that into video as well. Uh, I also have another one called "Let Me In," which is more slow down, melodic and deep track, which we made a video for too. Which you know what we do with the videos is. Uh, I generally go into other sources of video and cut them in to make it work for, for whatever we're doing. You know, um, there's a lot of labels that do stuff like that. You know, they just find other video sources, cut them and edit them into something, you know, we're not selling it. We're not even monetizing it on YouTube. Um, you know, so it's just something for fun. You know, that's kind of what we did with a lot of the videos. 
Okay. Um, so that that's probably actually a really good transition because you're you're talking about some of your tracks now. Mm-hmm. A lot of the a lot of your tracks have been released on Southern Exposure, but I noticed some of your other tracks have been released on other labels like White Line. Mm-hmm. How do you decide when you're a record label owner and a DJ and producer? How do you decide where you want to release your music? Yeah, it's a tough one, man. That's um, something I'm really particular about too. Uh, I for one, I don't. I don't like that part of the whole process. I don't like having to sell myself to people. Uh, it's definitely something that is easier for some people than others. Um, I'm not by any means introverted. I'm kind of more of an extrovert introvert, you know? So I, it, it can do it. I just don't like it. So I say all that to say, I, I'm really picky. Like I, I go in like, for example, my, one of my latest releases on a label called Layer 909. Um, they are out in Europe, and they're one of my some of my favorite people. Um, I've wanted to release on that label, so that's been on my kind of uh, you know dream board or whatever. You know, like in my mind, I actually had a physical one at one point with like labels on it, and um, I, I particularly want to go for those particular labels. And some of them are huge, some of them are small. Like Layer 909 is like a medium label; it's a pretty big techno label out in um i think they're in germany now or somewhere in europe but anyways i i went after them and i started talking to them so that's the part that's challenging for a lot of producers is you know you got to make the connection um you can put stuff into uh you know the little email or like the upload section of a website that the label might have and some of them listen to them i would say 90 percent of them don't uh even if they say they do i know for a fact from talking to a lot of the label owners, <laughs> um, but you got to make a connection. So you figure out who is in charge of that label. You start to either see them. If you, if you have the opportunity to see them in person, you make that connection, but most people don't. So you start to try to reach out, get their attention in some way, message them, DM them on Instagram. They don't always check those uh, tag them, start a conversation, you know, you do whatever you can. Um, and this is the part I don't like. Now, I have a lot more connections than most people these days, um, but I still hate that part because I don't want to be like, oh, I've got this new track. I think it's good for your label because a lot of times what I hear is, man, I love the song. We're so backed up right now. I don't even know when I could release it. That's so frustrating. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so I end up like taking breaks from that for a while. Like, for example, um, this past year, we've had a bunch of, we just are in the process of moving right now. And on top of that, we had a family member pass away um, from COVID. Oh, uh, so I appreciate it. Thank you. Get um, vaccinated, everybody. Yeah. So, you know, uh, that being said, um, I took a little break from trying to release my tracks on these other labels. Uh, I even pulled some from labels that uh, I had already, you know, agreed to do with. Do, to release with just cause I needed to kind of like let that all simmer and, you know, get over it all. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, but I'm about to go right back into that mode. So for those producers who don't even know where to start with that, you got to make connections. You got to go, even if they're on small levels, are you going out to events? Are you meeting other DJs? Are you saying, Hey, I'm a producer by the way. Hey, would you listen to my songs? Hey, would you, you know, stuff like that. Um, that's, that's really where a large percentage 
of success comes in this industry is knowing people, you know, because people make it, they, they, they make the handshakes for you. You know, they say, hey, we talked to my friend over here. He runs a record label. Oh, let me check it out. Oh, hey, how are you? Check out my songs. And then all of a sudden you're releasing with them. Uh, if it's a big label, you know, it's a harder reach, but you can still do it. You just got to try and make those connections. Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, so um, you mentioned you're, you've got a lot of uh, material that you've pulled back and that you worked on last year. And mm-hmm. that's probably a good time to talk a little bit about production. You've sure been really a, a prolific producer. Um, I, one of the, one of the things that I would like to get to is talk about the melodics podcast, but your sure. most recent episode or one of your, I think 200, you had a three hour set of all of your own original tracks, some unreleased, yeah. some original. I, I think there are very few producers out there that have three hours worth of material. To play. <laughs> I, I thought that was amazing. Yeah. Thank you, man. Thank you. That was a, that was really scary, honestly, because that was not made for the podcast. That was my, I think my 41st birthday, uh, I'm 42, uh, I'm old, uh, but you know, my 41st birthday, a friend of mine, Scott, who, uh, who kind of is a semi-manager, we don't really have an official relationship like that yet, but we've talked about it, but he does kind of behave in that way for me. Um, he challenged me, he said, you know what, man, for your birthday, you're already scheduled to play a three-hour set this place, why don't you do all of your originals? I was like, whoa, that's, uh, I knew I had enough, but I usually, you know, have such a wide range of songs and stuff that I can go in any direction the crowd's going. I can make the event really good uh, while I'm playing. And I was real scared to do that because I was like, I didn't trust my music to be able to make one of my sets only from it and really be happy with the set. But I went for it anyways. And, uh, was still like, I still had like 15 songs that I didn't use in that set. Um, but it was really nice because, you know, back when I first started producing, uh, I was playing at a lot slower speed. So I was playing, you know, around 123, 124, very bedrock records, very, you know, uh, minimal progressive house, I guess is what you would call it. And so I was able to start that set there and take it to my more modern stuff, which is, you know, more techno. So I ended the set, you know, around 132, uh, just playing techno. And it was a really cool experience. You know, like I said, it was not made for the podcast. We ended up using it on the 200th episode, but that night was real special for everyone there. It's my birthday. So I had a lot of people out there. Plus it was just a really big experience and I played all original music. Um, yeah. It, Worked out good, but definitely scary because, you know, I don't necessarily, you know, I don't think of my songs as that's all I'm going to play. I think of what two am I going to play that night or something like that. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I, I know that feeling. I, I kind of chickened out recently. I was playing a, a set and um, I wound up mixing in a lot of my remixes and mashups, uh-huh. but I think I only played like one of my own original tracks the whole night and, and kicking myself later. One of, one of my friends was out there and they were trying to get my attention, like play some of your own stuff. And uh, I, I kind of chickened out cause everything else was working well. And I was like, I don't want to yeah. mess with success. So. Yeah. It's hard too. I mean, it's hard because when you got a lot of your own songs, uh, you know, people get great experiences from them, but you've heard them a million times. 
And, you know, by the point you even play it the first time, you've probably heard it, you know, at least a thousand times from while you're producing it, you know? And so like, it doesn't necessarily connect with you. And I was always kind of like hesitant about playing my own stuff until I started doing it more often. And I started seeing people's experience live and it really touched me because, you know, I have a lot of friends too, uh, that when they're DJing, they look down the whole time, like never looking up. Like there's just a complete disconnect between what's happening in front of them and what's not. And, and, you know, as a DJ, you need to see the club, the crowd and, you know, kind of work with them. But as a producer DJ, you need to watch and listen to that track with them because there's something that will change you and the way you appreciate the track even more to kind of actually listen, stop mixing for a second listen to your track with the people, enjoy it together. And there's some kind of energy exchange there, which is real powerful. Yeah. That's terrific advice. Tell me about your process. So you, uh-huh. you are obviously, as I said, a prolific producer, you, you've, you've made a lot of techno, a lot of house, a lot of progressive. Where do you kind of begin a track? Uh, so I, I've gone a bunch of different ways over the years. I mean, <laughs> I used to have templates that I would start out with. Um, I basically start, you know, I mean, it could come down to, like I said, a lot of people say, make a template. It'll help speed you up. And it was just true. Um, but I've basically turned all that off at this point, And I start with a fresh Ableton and I have a, a chain on my master that I, I like to use to kind of um, control the sound. And that, that's about it. And then to start the track, it just depends on what inspired me that day. Um, I like working with sequencers. So sometimes I will get into uh, a sequence that goes into drums or a sequence that goes into the, the melody or like melodic kind of plucky sounds or, you know, some kind of weird synth line. Uh, I really don't have a starting point that I'd start on. I generally um, just, just start, <laughs> you know, like I just start working and then whatever's grabbing my attention at that moment, whether it be the drums, like I throw up a, a, a drum machine and start working on that or a synth line. Um, it just has to, it has to inspire me that day. You know, like uh, it's kind of like a, you know, I got a bunch of little friends here and who I want to play with today. You know? <laughs> yeah. I'm really, I'm really glad you say that because I I've gone on and off with putting together templates and whatnot. And, and frequently I find myself ignoring my template and kind of just starting with a blank slave yeah. and then i feel like well i'm doing this wrong but so i'm glad i'm glad you said that for, for the techno sound do you have favorite plugins do you i guess i should start what doll are you using yeah i use ableton i'm in uh 11 i guess is what it is now uh-huh. uh yeah i'm ableton 11 um that is my doll and you know essentially i can work from 11 you know like uh, alone if I wanted to, it's such a good, powerful instrument in and of itself. Um, uh, But I do have uh, a few plugins that I love, but I also have a little bit of hardware. Uh, Everything is based in my studio around my push to. So I work from the push to, uh, to, to get everywhere. And then I have a few, I used to have a lot more hardware. I've sold a lot of it because I found myself spending too much time, um, fiddling uh you know like it was nice yeah. to have and there, it's a lot of fun and it can come up with some cool stuff but i would I, as i sat there fiddling and fiddling and 
and my tracks were not getting produced, I, I was like, all right, well, what is this doing for me? And I would kind of sit there on that piece of hardware for a while and go, nothing. All right, I'm getting rid of this because it's a distraction at that point. You know, and then I would go to the other piece of hardware and say, what am I doing with this? Oh, I'm getting it. Cause I mean, I've got rid of like Moog synthesizers and, you know, uh, a couple uh, electron devices and whatnot uh, and really got to the point of finishing songs. And when I run out of stuff on the digital space on the, you know, in the box plugins and whatnot, maybe I'll buy some hardware again. Um, but until then, I, I just want to finish music. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. finish the songs. And I have a ton of friends who have way more hardware than I ever did. And we go into their studio and we maybe get a drum beat put down with some weird synth line. It's only eight beats long or eight, you know, whatever, or 16 or something, <laughs> you know, like, and that was a day's worth of work, you know, I'm like, come on, I got to finish some music so how does, here. How does the push enable your workflow? How does that speed things sure. up? And why is it, why have you kept that as a piece of hardware? Well, you know, it's cause it's, directly made for Ableton by, by them. And I use it for a ton of things. So for one, you know, it can become whatever I'm working on at the moment. So uh, for example, you know, I will work on producing the sound at the beginning. Like say I want to start with drums that day. I can immediately throw up a plugin that I've got on here, or I can throw up just their drum machine and start creating a drum rack from there with the push I can sequence it on the fly without touching my mouse keyboard um, with the push I can quickly add a track quickly throw in a melodic sequence uh, synthesizer or whatever sequence that from the push um, I can then say I want to get wacky and throw some like you know keys in there like play a keyboard well I can quickly throw that on from the push again I'm not even touching my mouse and keyboard at this point um throw the piano in there and then play the push as a piano using stuff like their scale inside of ableton and using um you know chord features or whatever or literally once you get comfortable playing on a i think it's called a euclidean keyboard or something like that uh the way that the push sets up your keys um you can play it like a piano uh, i have a a, a roland system one which is a, a general has a keyboard on the bottom of it so if I want to play, because I can play piano pretty well, um, if I want to play it more traditionally, I have that over there. But I tend to find myself now that I've given over to the working on the push, I'll play the keys right there. You know, uh, it's it's actually a little little more. Uh, what's the word? It breaks my muscle memory of playing piano. So where I would normally just play the same maybe chord structure, chord progress, or just stuff that I've just ingrained in myself when I see a pair of white and black keys i get on that push and i try different stuff um, how long did it take you to get comfortable with push and, I, and really integrate it into your workflow yeah I, i've been on it since push one and so uh i would say it probably took me a solid year uh, and that is a solid year of me telling myself i'm not starting anything with my mouse or keyboard i'm <laughs> staying on my push and then so the cool thing that you said about workflow all right, let's skip ahead a little bit. Push can't, it, it can record you. So you could literally record out your track by playing it like a live kind of environment if that's what you're into. I sometimes mm -hmm. do that. I sometimes just hit record, start messing around, get something. It's never my finished product. I eventually abandon the push, head to my mouse and keyboard, and 
actually orchestrate the track to where I want it to go. Uh, it's never just like record done. It's done. You know, for me, it's not at least I'm, you know, not happy with that. Um, but I, I do get it to a point where I st- like in Ableton, for example, uh, I'll be in Ableton and I'll, I'll use the session view for a while to where I get a progression of the track. I'll hit record. I might go through all that. I might mess with some of the uh, synth features like the cutoff or, you know, uh, some kind of you know attacker delay or something on the push and then go back and then i basically decide i'm done creating sounds for this i'm going to writing mode when i get to writing mode i am just keyboard and mouse i'm finishing out the layout of the track and getting it to that point then tracks all laid out for the most part i move back to the push and i start mixing with it because as a great mixer you can see uh, if you use the uh, Ableton um, EQs and compressors, which I tend to use those at least to start, um, I can see it all on the push. I can see the EQ. I can see a live waveform, all that kind of stuff. So by forcing myself to stay on there for a year and making as much work as I can do on the push, it became second nature. It's just like using a desk at that point, you know, a big desk inside of a big studio. Um, you just got to know where everything's at. And so that's why it's been vital to me because it's like, it sped me up to integrate. It kind of creates uh, really weird creative successes because it's just a different piece of hardware. On top of that, it has a great mixing, you know, board on it. Basically you can get in there and really feel like you're on a piece of hardware, you know? Hmm. So well worth, well worth the year and the, the time you invested that's paying dividends now. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely worth the time. Um, I tell every one of my friends who's bought one, the same, same thing, you know, cause they'll ask me, I think I have videos on this push or I can send you videos, but I'll tell you the best way to do it is just force yourself to, <laughs> you know, like figure it out on there because it can do everything Ableton can do with, you know, knowing where to go, you know? Interesting. Okay. All right. Well, I was kind of looking for a Christmas present, so maybe I'll, uh, Oh, it's, it's I'll worth it, man. Too. If you live in Ableton, if that's where you do most of your work, uh, it's, there's nothing nothing better you can invest your money in, guaranteed. Plugins are great. Plugins are great, but it has such native connection with Ableton too that you know it's it's it brings to life all the stuff inside of Ableton because it turns it into a piece of hardware. Yeah, it's really cool. Anyways, I'll get done that. I don't work for them. I promise. <laughs> this, this podcast sponsored by Ableton. Um, yep. Uh, so one one of your most recent releases was your Champions remix, uh, yeah. which you know the classic Queen song. Um, mm-hmm. You did that. Did you follow a similar workflow using the push there? And then did you start off with the Queen's acapella that you wanted to use, or did that come later when you realized it just fit well with the track? Or how did that come about? Yeah, it's a funny story because I was watching i don't watch a lot of like djs or anything like that well you know on, on videos and all that but i was watching a video stream that had just got my attention and i just stuck with it one night it was um adam bear and carl cox going back to back and i love both those guys and it was really neat to see and they're i think they're at gashauder or some place out in berlin and it was just beautiful it's a huge thing and it was just them having a great time the crowd was really eating it up. Uh, they were playing a lot of fun stuff instead of just really hard techno. 
And I said, man, I, I have this idea of what they should play right now. It needs to be this giant techno track. And the a queen comes in saying, we are the champions. Like if they had that song right now, it would just destroy the room. I'm sitting there thinking that in my head. And then like I turned the thing off and I got in there and I started making the track. <laughs> okay. I, I started it with finding a good version of uh, the queen song. So I had to go in and, and find an acapella and there happened to be like flack files of uh, tons of queen song acapellas that were just sitting there um, on someone's, on someone's thing. I never planned on selling this track. I always thought if I made it, I would give it away. I, in fact, wanted to make it and give it to them saying, you guys should be playing this song. Um, Cause I thought of it while watching them and I did attempt to give it to them and I never really made the right connection. Um, Cause I, you know, wanted, uh, you know, it's a, they're big guys. So um, that being said, I, I started with finding that, that acapella and then I forgot about it for a long time and started working on the, the drums and the, the bigness of the beat. I needed something very large and driving. And so that's where I just went into the drum world and started building this, you know, real large kick slash, you know, techno rhythm and started building that to where I could start piecing parts of the vocals back in and then eventually break down into just uh, Frank, Freddie Mercury singing, we are the champions, my friend, you know, and then come back in with another giant explosion of techno. Yeah. I thought, uh, I thought it was interesting the way you, you just, it was pure acapella at one point, you know, just yeah. with the chorus. And one of the things that I struggle with, with techno is, is sort of, I, I have, I'm impatient with my tracks. Like after uh -huh. 16 bars or so, I'm ready to move on to something else. And, and, yeah. you know, most of your tracks are seven or eight minutes long. How do you, what do you do that helps to hold the listener's attention? And how sure. are you, how do you patiently tease out those th th moments sort of really long build? Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, modern techno, there is a lot of that real quick, you know, cookie cutter, here comes the next moment, here's your drum roll into the next thing. And that's, you know, there's a lot of that in, especially US techno, and it's more like EDM kind of, um, which is fine. It's a great, some good music. But for traditional techno stuff, you're creating an experience that makes people kind of get lost. You know, they're getting lost in the music. And so to do that, it can't feel like here comes the next thing because then all of a sudden you're expecting that to happen. Oh, it did. I'm not, I, I'm just, you know, it's, it's fun, but it doesn't feel necessarily like I just got lost in this large amount of sound. And um, so what I do is there's a couple tricks, you know, um, it depends on the song itself, but occasionally you can do it with a synthesizer, like just, just, a, just controlling with the way that the synth line works, whether you're, pulling in extra notes here and there. You Maybe it's a polyrhythm where the, the synth line's not, it's repeating, but it's repeating on an off rhythm so that it doesn't hit the same way every time your your track finishes the rotation, like the 16 beat rotation or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so doing that, like a lot of times I'll do that polyrhythm with my drums and with a, a kind of, you know, interesting synth line. On top of that, you're stretching it out over, a, it's, all, it's like a painting, you know, you're painting this painting and stretching it out over this time and you want people to stay interested the whole time. So you take 
and work the synthesizer so that it's a live thing. It feels alive. It's changing. It's wrapping people's mind. You add a little sound here and there to kind of build the tension and people just want to want more. Give me more of this. I'm, I'm lost in this thing now, you know? So it's really working in, in a larger spectrum. You know, it's not like I got 16 bars, then a change happens, 16 bars and a change. It's like thinking about the, the, the thing as a whole. And like, say you got a synth line going through there. How can I make this synth line interesting enough that people want, want more of it? Oh, I got to have more of this. So I'm, I'm working the synth. I'm working the attack, the release, the cutoff, adding effects to it to change it up at certain moments, um, doubling it up from time to time, kind of add tension. Same thing with the drums, you know, you can throw a hi-hat into something, but if you work that hi-hat, say, you know, putting some kind of, um, some kind of thing to, to stretch it out, like an attack and release on it, you know, say it's just a sample. You can, you can use transient, uh, modifiers that can kind of stretch out your sample a little bit, by just opening that up, it feels like the drummer, all of a sudden it's hitting harder or just kind of like adding more of a, a beat to it. So it feels like it's building. Sometimes you can just do it by adding a second, second hi-hat in there. Either way, you're doing whatever you can to, for me, I like to create this large, you know, portrait that's has this tension building in throughout the whole thing and then releases it as the song's gone and everything starts to fade away slowly. You know, uh, either way, it just depends on, what the song is, those are just some examples of how it could be done. You know, it's yeah. making, making things interesting without saying, here's the next moment, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Those are great tips. Thank you. No problem. So in, in addition to being a DJ and producer and record label owner, you're also a podcaster, correct? Yep. Yep. I started uh, my podcast Melodics uh, a while ago. I can't even tell you what date it was, but we're in the 200s now, um, which has been real special to me as well. It's something that I I basically told myself I wanted to do and then never started it for a while. And it was, all right, you're going to do this. You're going to do it every week on Friday and, and do it. And you got to you know, do it special. Then I, then I got real creative and I was like, what if I have a guest on uh, in the second hour? So the way it works out for the podcast is first hour is me. And I generally try and put a lot of the promos I get into it and just kind of feature music I really like. Second hour is a guest and I've had guests from all across the world on the show now. And um, that makes it a whole nother set of responsibilities that I have to stick with is <laughs> getting the guests in, getting mine in, and uh, putting it all together, producing it, and then uploading it. Um, but it was something I said I wanted to do. I, I just I just went for it, and it's worked out really well. People have really been real receptive. We get about uh, – we've had at one point, uh, you know, where it was getting like 5,000 listens across them, or some, some of them I've had like 10,000 on. But generally, it's around the 1,500 range is where I'm happy. Um, I don't know if those were bots or something <laughs> like there were a couple of weeks that came in and went crazy and I'm like something fishy up here, but, uh, you know, take no, this. well, I mean, looking at, looking at the SoundCloud, I mean, you're getting a lot of comments and engagement too. It's yeah. clear. It's not just bots. Yeah, um, yeah. So do you distribute that on SoundCloud and Mixcloud or are there other places you distribute it as well? Yeah, we pretty much distribute it everywhere. Podcasts are allowed that are, um, DJ mixes. So we've got it on SoundCloud, Mixcloud, Apple. Google, um, 
then a couple a couple other miscellaneous ones. I think there's one called Tuner. Um, it basically anywhere. I have a I have a distributor that will put it out on all the podcast platforms that allow it. It used to be on Spotify, but they got wise and cut me off. And uh, they basically said, you know, we can't can't do that DJ stuff here. Um, I was like, okay. And then I I tried it again. Had it up there for a few weeks, and it was probably on Spotify for like I'd say six months, and then. Like I said, they got wives to it and cut me off. <laughs> yeah, they've they've changed their policies. Now they've got some sort of a program where you can do tracks that have already been distributed to Spotify, right? If I recall correctly, but um, I think it's kind of an exclusive agreement with Spotify, so you can't be distributing it elsewhere. Or so, it's something weird. One of the things I noticed that was interesting, and I'm, I'm curious if you if you changed sort of how you marketed it or, or, or something, mm-hmm. but on Mixcloud, um, you, you've had a lot of success there. You've got 500 some odd followers. You've got 200 some odd episodes there. It, it looks like you didn't start getting traction on Mixcloud until like episode 203 though. Yeah. And then it kind of took off. What, yeah. what changed between episode 202 and 203? Well, part of it was I was really pushing the SoundCloud. Um, for the longest time, like that's been where I pushed people. Uh, I did start doing a little different marketing where I was, um, uh, you know, when I released the show, I have it in a uh, one spot, like kind of link tree of sorts. You know, it's um, a program I use called Toned In, and uh-huh. I use them to put out the show. Well, I actually started spending money for a minute there. Um, right around that episode just to start getting that viewed and I would start moving Mixcloud to the top. I wanted to see what I could, what could happen. Uh, on top of that, that was right when Mixcloud started putting out their live environment mm-hmm. and traffic to Mixcloud just changed. So it was a good mix of, of things, let's say. <laughs> you know, I okay. started advertising it. I started featuring it a little differently in my link tree. Um, I started spending a little money to kind of push people towards that. And Mixcloud came up with this live environment and I think they just reinvigorated their base, uh, on top of it. So those things all worked out good. And, you know, we get like, you know, anywhere from two to 500 listens on Mixcloud a week, depends on the week. Um, which is great. It was way better than it was before. I was just kind of like, I was almost done with Mixcloud and, um, happy accident it worked out good good timing on my part i guess that they started that and really reinvigorated their base got people back on Mixcloud. yeah um, also seemed like a interesting lesson in persistence i mean you stuck with it for yeah. 202 episodes and then all all of a sudden you know you make a few tweaks and a, a little bit of good fortune there too but yeah yeah for um, sure it, yeah it, it's, it's definitely keep with it, it keep with it and keep trying stuff and and you know sometimes you have to tweak your your marketing so you know getting things in the right order, pushing things correctly, trying things differently and then measuring your results, you know? So, you know, fortunately, you know, we all got to be marketeers as well as producers, as well as most of us DJ, you know, stuff like that. It's like, uh, you know, you got a lot to do, but do it all well, if you're going to do it, you know, really focus your time on it. If it's your passion and it's something you really love, put everything you can into it. And don't necessarily expect results, but, you know, it's good to measure your results too, (laughs) you know, like see how things are going. And then if it's not working well that way, try to make a change, 
you know, um, it can be kind of, I know that feeling for a lot of producers and, and DJs that can feel really like bogged down by all this stuff because it's, it, it seems very challenging, but I have a friend of mine, uh, he's named Sam Wolf and you know, he was getting no response to any of his stuff and made a change, started playing techno, started making techno, he's a producer and still no response. And then all of a sudden he just, he hit up one of those um, websites that was like a label and he put his track in there and they actually listened to it. And all of a sudden now he's releasing on some of the biggest techno labels in the world. And now he's traveling around DJ and it's just, uh, he stuck with it. You know, he made some changes though. He tried some things. He, he, you're like one success away from everything opening up. So just stick with it. You know, <laughs> that, that is, um, f- fantastic advice. And I'm, I'm sure that will resonate with a lot of people, myself included. Uh, you've got, you've got a big change coming up. I understand you are moving out of Atlanta where you've been really a pillar of the underground techno scene. Um, what, what are your plans for the coming year and how are you going to, I guess, um, sort of introduce yourself to a new market? Yeah. Well, you know, the funny thing is it's not even a, a new market for me because I'm moving from Atlanta to a small city called Wetumpka. It's right outside of Montgomery. And I'm already connected with people in Montgomery. I've played uh, this year. I played a festival for them, my friends Jake, who uh, run Gravity Gravity Events, and they ran a, a festival called Passage. And I was able to play that. I played for them the past two years, and so I've already got friends in that market working for me, and they're all, all about it. They're super excited. But that being said, you know I'm only two hours outside of Atlanta. And uh, the move I'm making is to open me up to do a lot more than I'm even doing now because I made some financial moves, which really helped me out. Um, that being said, I'll be in Atlanta often, you know? I mean, <laughs> that's still the plan. I've still got plans for Atlanta. Um, but to be more realistic, um, over the past four years or so, I've played outside of Atlanta uh, probably a lot more than i played in Atlanta. Uh, I started playing a lot of festivals that are regional. So North Carolina, South Carolina, um, Alabama, Tennessee, stuff like that. Um, so, you know, I'm going to keep going with that. And I'll still play in Atlanta. Obviously I have roots here. That's the plan to keep doing what I'm doing. On top of that, you know, we still have plans to throw some events uh, in Atlanta too, which will probably take, take light next year, especially now that, you know, things with COVID are calming down. Um, we're, we're probably going to be doing some events there as well. So uh, it's not really I'm not too worried about it. We've got this new market, but I'm already, you know, knee deep in friends over there um, doing something already. So, you know, it's just an opportunity to, you know, to kind of explore, see what happens. Uh, you know, I, I definitely love what I do in Atlanta and none of that's going to change. On top of that, I have another opportunity say, you know, to do more, local stuff where I'm at as well in Montgomery. Okay. And what's, what's next for Southern exposure music? Uh, so we've taken a big pause. I, I kind of mentioned to you off, off the podcast. I had a, a loved one pass away this year and the big move. And um, it, it forced me to take a pause on both my show and my label. It really wasn't because I was overwhelmed or anything. It was more 
I didn't want that energy coming out in my, my work creatively. And I was still working on music. It seemed a little different, but it was just like as a, as an entity, I was basically only playing DJ gigs at that point. Um, at that point I could go out, I could go to the DJ gig and not focus on any of that. We could still make great connections and stuff. Um, but as far as putting out music and putting out the show, I took a little pause. That's all coming back as soon as we get moved into our new house. But the next things we have planned is probably not till March next year, to be honest with you. Uh, I've got three or four releases already lined up. Um, and I want to give enough time to properly put them together and to promote them. So we're going to take a pause till about March. And, and it's been weird. I'm going to be honest with you, like sales and stuff during all of the quarantines have just been wacky. Like some of them are really good. Some of them are not. And I don't want to just throw people's music to a bad market. If that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah, it does. I mean, you want it to represent, be represented well. Yeah. So, but I think we're there and I think, you know, starting probably March next year, we're going to start putting out all of our new releases that I've been sitting on. Um, as well as my own releases uh, that I've got scheduled, but I've kind of took a pause from releasing too, just because you know got a little heavy there uh, with all the stuff going on in my life. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, that being said, that's the next plan. It's just like I think next year is probably going to be a big uprise for the label and for myself as well, uh, as far as producing and releasing. Uh, I've shared a few of them with you, but I've got about twenty unreleased tracks. I just got to go into the sales mode and put that hat on and make it happen. <laughs> yeah. So where can people find, I guess, first rascal? Where yeah. Can people find you online. So I'm at all of the socials, but it's a rascal sound rascal with a K sound. Uh, but they're all at rascal sound. So either, you know, backslash rascal sound or at whatever you do, uh, you can find me. And uh, I also, you know, link out from there, my Southern exposure stuff, as well as my show melodics. Um, so if you're looking for the podcast melodics, just go to at rascal sound at my SoundCloud, Mixcloud, YouTube, all that kind of stuff. And you'll find it all, um, for rascal and melodics. Okay. Well, perfect. Well, I really appreciate your time and, and good luck with the move. Um, and I hope this year is certainly a lot, uh, uh, brighter than the past. Yeah. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. I'm sure it will be. Thank you so much for listening today. With episode 100 approaching rapidly, I'd love to keep the momentum for this podcast going. One of the best and easiest ways you can help is by sharing this or another episode with a producer friend and encourage them to subscribe. As always, I'll have links for everything on the show notes page. Just go to producerlifepodcast.com and look for episode 89. Until next time, this is the House Ninja reminding you to be somebody's hero today. 